Welcome to another episode of the Miko Peled podcast. We are happy to be back on the podcast and putting out some original content. So for those who have been following Miko lately, we have been really busy with his new webinar series, which has been coming out monthly, you know, actually sometimes twice a month. And, you know, basically the short version with this webinar series is that uh, Miko hosts a panel to discuss a different topic pertaining to Palestinian justice, Israel, and a lot of other intersecting issues. So I end up taking the audio from that webinar and turning them into podcasts for this audience. So that's what you've seen in your podcast feed for the last you know, month or a couple months or so. Um, but it also helps because if you've missed one of those events, you can uh, tune into the discussion via the podcast. But we also have the videos that you can watch, as well as citations and resources from each of the panelists available at mikopella.com. So whichever one you, per- you prefer, the audio version, the video version, it's all either on mikopella.com or via this podcast. We got you covered all the way. So with that said, today is back to our old style of doing things where Miko, you know, sits down with somebody that he admires and who is putting in the work for Palestine. And today's guest is Susan Abulhawa. Susan Abulhawa was born to refugees of the Six Day War in 1967 when her family's land was seized and Israel captured what remained of Palestine, including Jerusalem. She moved to the States as a teenager, graduated in biomedical science, and established a career in medical science. In July 2001, Susan founded Playgrounds for Palestine, a children's organization dedicated to upholding the right to play for Palestinian children. Her books include Mornings in Janine, a book of poetry titled My Voice Sought the Wind, The Blue Between Sky and Water, and her much-anticipated upcoming work, Against the Loveless World, which we have included links to in the description. So there's both an Amazon and a non-Amazon option for purchasing. So please do yourself a favor and pre-order Against the Loveless World if you're a fan of Susan's work um, or even if you're new to her work. Uh, Susan is also a signatory to an active participant in the BDS Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions campaign, which calls for an economic and cultural boycott of Israel. So in this interview, um, the two of them discuss Susan's latest book. They discuss the inescapable politicization of Palestinian art. Uh, They discuss the cultural boycott of Israel in practice and a lot more. So now on to the conversation between Miko Pellet and Susan Abulhawa. All right, so Susan Abulhawa, it's um, really great to chat with you again. We haven't seen each other in a while, so it's good to see you. Yeah, it's been a while. Uh, thanks for sending me a copy of your new book, uh, Against the Loveless World. I picked it up. I was not able to put it down other than to you know, sleep and eat. And even that was uh, was some difficulty. Um, and uh, I was uh, I, I I really couldn't put it down. I read it. I'm a very slow reader, and I read it very very quickly. Thanks, Nico. I think and, that's um, every writer wants to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I, seriously, I'm not you know I'm not saying it because because uh, you're my friend. And it's uh, it's moving because it's uh, it's got you managed to put in so much into the book. I mean, you managed to put in. Palestine, uh, you managed to put in so many different issues that are relevant to so many different people. Um, and you tied it all in to Palestine, which of course you care deeply about, um, as do I. So I thought maybe just to start off, maybe you can just tell me about the book. Tell me what, how it started, what your thoughts were, where it came from, just whatever you want people to know about this, uh, about this book, about this creation. I mean, just a, a broad overview. It's it's yeah. um, it's a little bit different from my previous two books, um, even though it is uh, somewhat um, intergenerational. But it's principally the story of one woman, and um, she she is a Palestinian woman who was born in Kuwait. She has multiple names. Um, her mother named her Nahar after the Nahar al-Urdun or the Jordan River um, to keep a promise that she made to the Jordan River when she was forced to cross it 
on foot following Israel's invasion of what remained of Palestine in 1967. And, um, but her father uh, recorded the name Yaqut on her birth certificate, um, which was kind of a, a, a drunken nod to his mistress at the time. Her younger brother, Jihad, um, nicknamed her Nanu uh, when he was little. And um, she took the name Almas um, in her 20s, when she, uh, which she used at late night parties with powerful men who paid her to dance um, and other things. Um, so the story spans, uh, you know, the, the, the late 67, the, the late 60s into um, uh, through the Gulf, first Gulf War, Iraq's invasion of Kuwait, and then the U.S. invasion of Iraq, um, the, the flood of refugees, of Palestinian refugees from Kuwait into Jordan. And then um, it goes in, then she goes to Palestine where her destiny really unfolds um, in a very dramatic way and um, uh, in, a, in a highly fictionalized way as well. Um, in a, in, a, in a type of resistance that hasn't happened yet in Palestine. And uh, what, what, how did this start? How did her story start in your mind? Where did it come from? So um, all of my stories just kind of start with a couple of seeds. I don't really ever know what the story is going to be or where it's going to go or who the supporting characters are going to be. Um, but the, the seeds that I started with in this novel were um, number one, that it, would, um, that it would begin in Kuwait, that it would, it would encompass Palestinians who, um, who, who uh, found refuge in Kuwait and made that their home. Um, and I also knew that it would encompass uh, sex work to some extent, um, which is rampant. Um, and uh, especially in Gulf nations where, um, uh, where men pay a lot of money for sex. And also uh, the other seed was that it would encompass a kind of um, unconventional type of resistance in Palestine. So those are the three things that I, I started with in the story. I didn't have any of the any of the other characters, um, just Nahed and these three little vague kind of outlines. And you managed to, um, to create a story that's also, at the same time, universal and very Palestinian. Because the issues that Nahed faces throughout her entire life, as a woman, are universal. The cruelty of men, the, the, the whole sex trafficking and sex trade issue. And her own life, really, in in this in this in society, uh, there's so many places where she could have been, uh, and would have had the same the same life because she's a woman. And at the same time, it's also very Palestinian. And another thing that really struck me is how these characters are all very full characters, and they kind of weave in and out of each other, and in the whole story of Palestine um, seamlessly, which I thought was really really brilliant. Um, so the one line I mentioned to you when we talked uh, that really struck me, and it, you, it's, it's, it's there right in the beginning, where Nahir says, I don't care to be accommodating. I found that to be very meaningful. Maybe, I don't know if you meant for what you, what you had in mind when you thought about that or when you made her say that, but can you talk about that a little bit? Well, what, why is it meaningful to you? I'm just curious. Like what, what well, did it because, mean? because being uh, being unaccommodating is crucial when I think you are um, an oppressed minority, when you're struggling for your rights, when you're a woman. I mean, being unaccommodating is carries a lot. It's a yeah, it's a yeah. huge statement to make, um, and I think it goes through a thread. Her being her unwillingness to be un her unwillingness to be accommodating right. runs through the entire story. Uh, and she pays a heavy price for it. It's not easy. It's not like it's, it's, it comes easy for her. Um, and I think it's part of the larger issue of um, 
like I said, women, but also oppressed people, whether you accommodate the oppressor and the occupier or you resist and there's a conflict there. Yeah. You know, we see yeah. this in Palestine all the time. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so, I'm wondering, so I'm wondering what your thoughts were when, 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 you, when you made her say that. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very um, astute of you to kind of hone in on that um, statement because it was meant to be meaningful. So on the on you know on a very superficial level um, that she makes that statement um, in reference to not speaking English. So you know she's in a she's in this prison cell, and she gets visitors who you know who start to speak to her in English. Um, and she was saying, you know, I can speak English, but I don't really care to be accommodating. She doesn't care to try and meet them, make them comfortable. She, as far as she's concerned. She's an Arab woman. They can either speak to her in Arabic or they can bring her an interpreter or something. It's not her problem. Um, and um, I think, you know, as women, um, first of all, there's that layer. You know, we are, especially women of my generation, have always been taught to, um, to be small, to, to accommodate to to sacrifice to um uh to cater to other people's whims especially the whims of men and um and not to and to be careful not to to damage their egos and and whatnot i mean these were um there's a whole system of um of accommodation that uh, women of my generation, and I certainly have had to unlearn, spend a lifetime unlearning. And, um, and you're right, that also translates to um, oppressed uh, societies, especially, um, especially in situations where, you know, people are basically powerless to, to shape their destiny and to and to have any control over their lives, and so accommodation becomes, um, uh, um, you know, a survival mechanism. And uh, some people choose not to accommodate, and and many of them pay the ultimate price for that and are killed. So, you know, Nahed, it's not that she's never accommodating because there are times in her life where she has to be because her life depends on it. Right. And, um, and, uh, and there's actually another line in there where, you know, she says, um, we have, I have, you know, we're taught to cater to the whims of men. And then she says, dot, 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 until we get even. And she does. And she, she holds a grudge like no one else, <laughs> you know? Um, and, you know, when it comes to Palestinians, I think, you know, you can, there, there are segments of our society who, um, for whom accommodation has, is just um, second nature. And, you know, we are, um, I shouldn't say we, because I, I, again, that was one of the things that I've spent a lifetime unlearning. Um, is that uh, we do, we are called to, to accommodate, especially the sensitivities and the sensibilities of Jewish people all over the world, right? Um, we are constantly being told, you know, well, you have to understand because they endured a Holocaust. And, um, but the reverse, of course, is never asked of Israelis. Well, you, you have to understand you've just taken their entire lives, everything that they've ever known. You've stolen everything from them, right? The reverse is never, uh, is never asked of Israelis. Um, and so on a human level, of course, one can understand that. But I'm not interested in, um, in, in accommodating and sort of, you know, uh, uh, letting other people's sort of paranoia or insecurities or or sensitivities, or history, or um, whatever it might be, that doesn't trump um, uh, my safety, or my freedom, my liberty. And, and that's how Nahir feels as well. Um, she, she, from a very young age, even though uh, she was, um, 
you know, just kind of a very um, simple uh, girl with very simple and unassuming ambitions. She she was never anybody. I mean, she was kind of, she always, you know, even as a little girl, she had like her little girl gangs. And um, so she was never, she never bought into that, um, you know, women are, 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 are to do what women are to do in terms of accommodating and sacrifice and whatnot. But she never had a name for it and she never had words for it. She didn't have a language for this, this sort of innate rebellion she had inside of her. So, um, and I kind of like to, 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 to label that as, you know, she was a feminist without really ever knowing the word feminism. And so was Umburak, you know, and we've all known women like that um, from indigenous societies like Palestinians um, and everywhere else where, um, uh, you know, you have this sort of inherent dignity um, and uh, of being a woman and you're not interested in subverting your own dignity for to accommodate someone else's ego or someone else's sensitivity or insecurity and whatnot. Yeah. And that translates on every level. Yeah, you know, I hear, I, I'm amazed how many times I hear Palestinians who explain to me that they need to be more accommodating and they need to understand more and they really think that if Palestinians understood the Holocaust better and so on and so on that that's really the key the burden is on them to understand and I have a friend uh, a great activist here in DC Tahrir Zala, and uh, we were at this he was actually speaking on a panel about six months ago um, very controversial event um, in one of the suburbs here in DC um, and um, the place was packed with these older Jewish, you know, kind of very liberal Zionist types. It was, the, the, it was a real controversial event. They almost canceled it, whatever, whatever. Anyway, he was on the panel with this other liberal Zionist, somebody from J Street. And at the end, uh, things got heated up and these, you know, these, you know, very obvious uh, kind of local Jews, very wealthy, you know, it's a very nice community, suburb. You know, he stood up and he said, so, you know, do we not deserve a place where we can be safe? Are we, and, you know, the guys lived his whole life in Washington, D.C. He's very wealthy. He lives in a beautiful place. You know what I mean? The absurdity of what he was saying didn't even occur to him, that he needs another safe place somewhere else. Yeah, just in case. And, and which is, you know, I, I was like, I, I couldn't believe these words were coming out of his mouth, sitting where we were in this beautiful suburb, right? And Tahir looked at him and he said, I got four words. Not at my expense. And that was it. Talk about being unaccommodating. You know what I mean? That's that's exactly the line. I respect that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly the line. Whereas on the other hand, you have all these people that say, no, they need to understand better. We, the Palestinians, need to understand the Jews better and so on. So anyway, like I said, I thought that was, uh, that was a really, really powerful moment where she says that. And it really set the stage. Um, another thing that I thought was uh, was powerful was the use of the Arabic language because you're not compromising. You're using a lot of Arabic. I mean, obviously the book's in English, but you're using a lot of Arabic for names, for names of events, for names of things, for names of places, food, and so on. And you, and you say it the way it's said. You write it like Muhammad. You don't write Muhammad, it's Muhammad, which is the way yeah. people call each other. And I thought this moment where, and also tying into the fact that she's not accommodating about the language in her cell. So she's inside a cell, inside a prison, inside the state of Israel, which are three structures that were created artificially in Palestine, really in order to, in order to imprison Palestinians at different levels. Mm -hmm. The state of Israel is also a form of prison for Palestinians with all of its racist laws and the different definitions of Palestinians and so forth. Then you've got the Palestinians in the jail and then she is in this little cell. And um, she brings into this, into this very Israeli Zionist uh, environment, the Arabic language, which is really the language of the entire world on the outside. Even that's really the language of Palestine, you know? So she kind of brings it, even though she's in this, in this uh, layer after layer after layer of a prison, an artificial Israeli prison that was imposed on Palestine, she insists on bringing all of that that's on the outside to Kuwait and Jordan and Palestine itself 
into yeah. that space, which is, I think, also incredibly uh, powerful. I mean, I can and respond then, to that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, the 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 issue with um, uh, the you know Arabic words being in Arabic is, I mean, that's something I do in all my novels. I I maintain some of the Arabic words that just I don't feel like should be translated. <laughs> they're just so beautiful in their natural form, you know. Like for example, I would never think to translate inshallah to God willing. You know, inshallah is inshallah. <laughs> you know, khalas, it's you know what I mean? So um and there's other other uh such words um that uh, I think are just so beautiful in their in their natural form and they should um, they should just stay that way. And, and I put a glossary to make it easier for, you know, for, for people who aren't familiar with the language, um, you know, just to have a reference. But that said, um, I don't, so I, um, I actually don't feel, it, that wasn't something I did to, um, to kind of uh, indigenize a colonizer space or something like that um, because I, I because Hebrew yes Arabic is is the predominant language of the region but Hebrew is indigenous to Palestine um, the language I mean not maybe not the Israeli kind of Hebrew I don't think that's uh, what was spoken before my understanding is that's a little bit of kind of bastardized from the original Hebrew but 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 the you know Palestinian Jews and Iraqi Jews and Persian Jews um, pr always prayed in in biblical Hebrew languages, and and they had that language um, there before Israel sort of came and just created this whole Zionist infrastructure around the language and in the country and whatnot. So, um, which is one reason that you know, even though I have refused to. Um, publish my books in Israel. Um, it it isn't because I don't I I've refused to for them to be translated into Hebrew. Um, quite the contrary. I mean, I would be happy for them to be translated into Hebrew, but I'm not doing business with an Israeli company. Right. Um, so yeah. So it's not. Um, I I don't. You know, languages are. Um, languages are 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 portals and they're beautiful and and I don't really have an issue um personally with with Hebrew you know yeah, yeah no I know even, but, even yeah. being a you know a major language in Palestine I think it should be it's um uh, uh um you know the more languages people know in life the better sure. but um yeah so yeah. I was suggesting that's what you did I just yeah, thought it was, you know yeah. She brought her. She brought the outside into the cell using the language. Uh, let's talk a little bit about literature and about resistance through literature. I, you know, in, in, I think it is in, in clearly your literature um, is resistance is a form of resistance. That's that's I, I see. And at least that's that's how I see it. Rasan um, Kanafani, I think it's fair to say as well. Even though his literature is, is wonderful and lives on its own, clearly. But there is an element of resistance when it's when we're talking about Palestine. What do, what do you think about that? Do you think literature is a form of resistance? So it can be, yeah. And I think when Palestinians, no matter what we do, um, whatever art we produce, regardless of whether it is um, overtly uh, um, relative to resistance activities or not, becomes an act of resistance simply because our entire existence is negated. So anything that sort of you know, places us as a people on in history and, and in the world um, is an act of resistance. However, um, I, uh, I I don't write. I mean, I don't tell these stories starting out that that this is um, that I'm writing resistance. You know, I'm writing, <laughs> that I'm writing uh, uh, the uh, literary resistance. Um, and and I and it's not that I um, I think there's anything wrong with that not at all but I I do think that storytelling um, at least for me really has to um, begin and end um, and take the entire journey with the characters period um, and I I think 
for me, um, for, for, for my stories to work and to come alive for me, that's the only loyalty that I can have in the process of writing. And that is loyalty to the characters, to their truth, to, um, to their lives, their inner worlds, their outer worlds, to, um, to the terrain and the topography and the, and the, you know, and the historic audit. I, I can't ever really write um, with a loyalty to, to readers, to a particular school of thought, um, to, to my publisher, um, to the money, uh, to, to anything. Like I just, um, it doesn't work for me to have any of those, um, those motivations in my head. It's really all, it's character, it's driven by the lives of the characters. Like I, you know, I, at some point in the process, I, I just, I fall in love with them or I hate them or something happens where they are, they're real, they're very real to me and, and they kind of begin to write their own stories. I want to, I want to get your take on a quote, okay? Talking about whether it's resistance or not resistance, but uh-huh. actually two quotes, but I'll start with this one. The first one is you talk about the epic fabrication of a Jewish nation returning to its homeland and how it has, it has grown into a living, breathing narrative that, ship, that shaped lives as if it were truth. Mm-hmm. You talk about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole the whole idea of this, like the the whole the whole sort of fairy tale surrounding the creation of Israel is is such an extraordinary lie and myth that. But an epic an epic fabrication. It is. It really is. I mean, the whole it, the whole world bought it wholesale. And um, in, in, even, even Israelis, you know, it's not like the, the population's trying to hoodwink everybody. I mean, there's a small group of Israelis who are, but the Israeli population believes it. This, you know, that, that Jews of the world for, for millennia have been yearning to, to go and live in Palestine, to return to, you know, um, to return, that that's where they're all from and whatnot. I mean, it's, there's, you know, first of all, not only is there zero forensic evidence that any that Jewish people from Poland, for example, ever set foot in Palestine prior to Zionism. Um, also, this idea that um, that Jews could never go to Palestine until Israel was created is also a lie, because you know, um, for for the twelve hundred years under Muslim rule. Any, like Jews were free to go. I mean, that's how a lot of Zionists went there, right? Like Ben-Gurion was able to go and get a, a wonderful education in, in uh, Ottoman Palestine and, and, uh, and live there because it was open. It was, it was really, you know, Muslims especially opened um, the region to, to Jews. Um, well, actually, but it, actually, actually, the reason Jews didn't go is because of the Jewish prohibition. Jewish law prohibits the return of Jews. That's a big reason why Jews stayed where they were. I mean, they were doing fine also where they were, but Jewish law prohibits that return as well. So, and, and those days, but it's Jews not a, were, but it's not, first of all, it's not a, like, that's part of the fabrication of return, yeah, of but, but regardless of what the reasons were, I'm just saying return, that, yeah. yeah, this, you know, anybody, they were free to go, to go and live there before if they wanted, it's just that nobody wanted. And also this idea that Jews of the world were a singular nation is also a fabrication because prior to Zionism, you know, no, no European Jew ever looked at an Arab Jew and thought, oh, that's my brethren or my sister. And, you know, they just, I mean, they had, they were Europeans, complete with European racism and, and white supremacist ideals and what, who looked at um, people east of them with disdain and, um, and, you know, with a sense of superiority, um, which is, yeah, that's a whole nother conversation. But, yeah, I know, but I thought I thought that was a I thought that was a pretty powerful uh, line right there, where you uh, where you say that you don't you don't see that sort of stuff even you don't see that sort of stuff in 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 fiction in novels, and I think it's great that it's there because it's just so natural. You know what I mean? You say it as though it's like no big deal. This is it's not a big deal to say it because look at it. I mean, here's what it is. Um, there's another quote which is uh, of a different. Um, you know, a completely different style. It's a completely different thing. Where you talk about, you're looking at, you're looking at Bilal, 
I mean, she's looking at Bilal, and she talks, she says she sees the guilt, the impotence of the impotence of seeing the, those settlements, the anguish over his brother, his mother, the years in prison, the torture, the inability to move. And she's watching him, and she's seeing that it's not a conversation. She's seeing that in him as she's looking at him. Can you talk about that? Um. So this is, um, you know, for people who haven't read it, this is, uh, Bilal is the man that she's fallen in love with. And um, he, uh, you know, he's kind of imprisoned um, in his own home. He has been in and out of Israeli prisons. Um, but even after he's released, you know, he's still, <clears throat> um, he's not allowed to practice his profession. And as happens with, with uh, a lot of Palestinians, they really can't, you know, move beyond a, a small radius um, surrounding where they live and you know they and and they're forced to contend with all manner of restrictions um, and uh, why the guilt hmm? you start by saying the guilt it starts with guilt the guilt the impotence of seeing the settlements and so on why the guilt <clears throat> um, so Again, um, he she's referring to to Bilal, who's a fighter. I mean, either he and and I think that readers should really kind of um, it makes more sense when you get to know Bilal and and who he is. Um, they both feel guilt for different reasons. Um, in the same way that we feel guilt, you know, I I feel guilt here living in relative safety and relative privilege um, and relative liberty. Um, she has her own measure of guilt as well. And so does Bilal. I mean, he's a fighter. He's, he's failed on some fronts. He's, um, he's, he's impotent. And he also does some things too um, that he's ashamed of that, that aren't entirely um, consistent with his, role as a fighter as well. So it's, it's, they're complicated. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let's, let's move on to, uh, um, let's move on to politics a little bit, to BDS, to the uh, cultural and academic boycott, which is something I know you're involved with and you and I discussed um, several times. And um, in a way, I think it's similar to, to the, accommodating uh, thing we discussed earlier, where people, even Palestinians will say, yes, but you know the academic boycott, the cultural boycott, that's going too far because the academics and the artists, these are the people we can connect with. These are areas where people can come together and so on. So are they wrong or <laughs> talk about that? <laughs> well, you know how I feel about that. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel that way too, but I want to hear you say it. Yeah, this idea that um, art is somehow separate from socio-political realities is is the epitome of of privilege and and sort of privileged liberalism that um, you know that that. Uh, I mean, people who indigenous societies, occupied people, oppressed people, right from a collective wound, um, as well as individual experiences and um, that reflect our realities. And to, and, and for people outside of that, that context, outside of that context of, um, of personal and collect, of, of, of the collective destruction, and the collective anguish and collective wound. Um, don't don't um, don't have the the visceral sort of knowledge of that. Um, they don't they don't get it. <laughs> they don't get that. Um, they don't get what it's what it is to to come from this sort of intergenerational ongoing trauma and and for 
And when you create your, you know, art from that and for people to, for them to come and say, well, you know, that's separate and you can't, you know, don't, don't mix politics with art or don't mix, um, don't mix sort of a collective experience or a collective social issue with art as if those things can be separated. Like they're just, you know, they're, they're inseparable. I'm like, my writing is, cannot be separated from, from me as a Palestinian. Um, it's, it's almost like separating the woman from a mother or something, you, you know, there's, they're so wound up in each other and, and so dependent and intertwined um, that there's no, there's, there's no separation between them. And the idea that there can be really has to come from a place where, um, of a place of privilege where you just, where you have no real sense of, you have no sense of, of, uh, of what it means to, um, to, to just to come from that kind of context. So what do you, so how do you see the boycott, the academic and cultural, the cultural boycott since you're talking about art, how, how do you see that happen? Or what, what, what is your interpretation of that? I mean, I think it's vital. It's, it's important to every, but, so. You know, Paul, what, what is it? What is the boycott? How does the boycott of that happen? So, um, so cultural boycott is basically, and I touched on this earlier when I said that I, you know, I won't have my books published in Israel because I'm not doing business with Israel. And it just, it means that um, as artists, as writers, as musicians, you don't lend your name, your labor, your art to, um, to whitewash or to normalize um, a very violent, abnormal, um, oppressive colonial situation. So, what do you mean by normalize? Normalize by normalizing. Um, normalizing means to to make normal, right? To make it okay. To make it okay. So, if if I'm a performer and I agree to go hold a concert in Israel, for example. I am, and even though the indigenous people who live in, in virtual prisons have called on performers around the world not to lend their name to legitimize this oppression, and I go in defiance of that call to boycott, I am normalizing the situation. I am lending my name to an, a system of apartheid simply by performing because I'm basically saying there's nothing wrong with this. It's okay for me to go and perform for the people who are allowed to come and listen to me. Um, even though other people who might want to hear my songs are not allowed to cross checkpoints and whatnot because they're, they're not the right religion or whatnot. You're, you're that, that's what we mean by normalization. Um, you know, precedent. The, the the biggest precedent um, was the uh, boycott against apartheid South Africa, um, and the most famous you know instance of instance of that was um, you know the song "I Won't Play in Sun, in Sun City," and uh, artists around the world refused to um, refused to entertain in South Africa. They refuse to lend their name, their art, their labor to an oppressive system. They refuse to normalize that oppressive system. They refuse to, um, to accommodate apartheid. And so that's what Palestinians are asking for. And that's what I mean by normalization. What about the academic boycott? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. <laughs> It's the same concept, you know, whether it's art or um, academic cooperation. Most, um, most Israeli academic institutions are involved. I mean, Israel is a military state and there's, there's really no aspect of Israeli society um, that is not uh, uh, 
complicit in in the in the military in the in, in this military apparatus in the occupation apparatus in the colonization apparatus and their universities are um are at the top of that actually in lending um their research and in accepting funds and um in uh, uh in ongoing and persistent cooperation with the military and with the occupation and and with settlement building and and whatnot so um again you know academic boycott means not normalizing those things not pretending that israeli um academic institutions are you know are not complicit um not pretending that you know a university in an Ill illegal settlement like ariel um is a normal university because it's not so that's um that's why the academic boycott and also because you know um their academic institutions are frankly not open to uh uh to most people and you know to, they're not open to even many of their arab citizens and they're not open to certainly not open to palestinians and they're not not even open to um palestinians palestinian citizens of other countries because of their um uh because of their heritage their palestinian heritage Right. And you don't have to go all the way to Ariel. I mean, Tel Aviv University sits, I think, Absolutely. on four or five Palestinian uh, villages. Yep. Absolutely. And uh, also, the same goes for Haifa and the others. Yeah. yeah. Actually, you know, people always talk about, um, you know, one of the Zionist narratives is that, um, you know, that, that they're sort of restoring the kingdom of um, Judea and, and David and whatnot. But there was never an instance in history when um, ancient Hebrew, Hebrews actually controlled any part of the coastal region. So, you know, the, the, the political control of ancient Hebrews was inland from the coast. The coast was always um, part of, uh, was part of Phoenician and, um, and Philistine heritage, right? Um, so, yeah, there's just, a little bit of yeah, I mean, yeah, if, if, if anybody wants to, since we're talking about books, I'll, 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 I'll plug in another book, Norma Salha's book, Palestine, A 4,000-Year History. Yes, I love that. Really the last year before, an excellent book about the, clearly showing how the name Palestine has been used to describe that piece of land going back 4,000 yes. years, and he touches on all of that. So, um, um, so that's, that's, of course, it's, 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 uh, it's great history, and it's just very, very very, very clearly, very simply states the case without falling back on biblical, on the biblical narrative, which of course is not historic or, you know, in any way, shape, right, or form. Right. So, um, yeah, and I, and I think just going back to the, to the uh, cultural and academic boycott, my, my question is always, well, if these academics are so, you know, open-minded and progressive, where are they? In other words, if the university sits on Palestinian, destroy Palestinian towns, why aren't they demanding reparations to the people whose homes these used to be? Why are they not in the streets demanding, you know, Israelis are not but the thousands protesting in Jerusalem in front of the prime minister's office to get Netanyahu out. Right. Why aren't they protesting to give water and, and medicine at the very least and, 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 um, and cancel the siege on Gaza? Well, here's well, the thing. You know, these are all academics. These are, you know, I mean, where are they? Why, if they're so, why aren't they protesting? Why aren't they standing up? So if they stood up for all these things, then you could say, well, then maybe there's no argument, but they're not even there. They're all completely complicit with the Zionist narrative, with the Zionist myth, with the Zionist. Uh, I wouldn't even use the words, I wouldn't even use the words, you know, give water, give anything. I mean, it's not, it's not Israel's to give in the first place. You have to allow, to provide, to whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's their, you know, they can return it. They can, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, they're not there standing up for these uh, for the issues issues anyway. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what uh, what the, the what the Palestinian uh, the the boycott does, PACP, and, and the work that they do in the campaigns? Because people always want to join. People always know. Do you have any insight? Uh, uh, any more insight about that? Because it's a crucial issue, and it's one that I know I come across a lot with people, and I have to argue this case over and over again. Um, and uh, can you talk a little bit more about what the academic and cultural boycott is doing, actually? Are you comfortable so, talking about I, mean, stuff? I think the best thing is to just visit the website, USACB, 
um, and PACB. There's, um, I'm a member of US ACB and uh, they actually have webinars regularly. So you can, people can go there. Yeah. Okay, well, I think this, I think we covered everything that, um, that I thought of. Is there anything that you wanna add in regards to the book, to the story, to anything? I think it's, uh, like I said, I couldn't put it down. I read it, I'm a very slow reader and I think I read it in like three days um, or something like that. It's, um, uh, it's, it touches on universal issues, it touches on Palestine. It, um, so I, I do wanna say, I mean, I, you know, one of, the, one of the, the traps that, you know, I always fall into and, and I think um, even interviewers always sort of do this with Palestinian writers is that you know there ends up being this concentration on on the political. Like our entire discussion was really about the politics, um, but in fact, I mean, this is a very it's a very human story. And and um, I said and it was very universal. It didn't have to be Palestinian. Go ahead. A human drama, right? But I, you know, there there is this sort of focus on politics when it comes to Palestinians um, in a way that you know that isn't present with, uh, you know, with fiction from white people, for example. Um, and, you know, it's... Do you think it takes away from something? I, I think it elevates. So the characters end up, yeah, their lives, the story gets lost. I mean, it does. I mean, the story does get lost. Um, and there is, um, yeah, I mean, like, there's, there's these um, amazing characters that I kind of fell in love with, you know, like Umburak is, is a badass, you know, but she's also tortured. Um, you know, Muhammad, um, Bilal, the friends, they, they all have their, they all have their individual, um, their individual dramas that are nestled in this sort of political milieu for, for sure. But, um, I mean, I, I think that, I think that the, the personal dramas are just as compelling, um, or at least I hope they are, they were for me. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I don't want it to seem like this book is, uh, um, you know, sort of a, a political rant or, or anything like that. Um, I hope it's not, I mean. And, and oh, I agree, I okay, there's no question. The all part of something bigger so to me it makes it more interesting it's like if you read um if you read uh you know i told you i just read ibrahim nasrallah's the the lanterns of the king of galilee it's a beautiful historical novel right but the fact that it's talking about a king that lived in palestine and ruled almost all of palestine you know that adds something tremendous to the to, to, to the story i think to the fact that it is about palestine and there is this connection to something greater, which is political and social and so forth. So to me, that's not a that's not taking away at all from. Um, yeah, but I mean, the very qualities of the book at all. I love that novel, um, but it's its power is is in what he did with the characters and the oh, story and, and and the individuals. I mean, anybody can can write about you know the King of Galilee. Right? Anybody can, and you can write a nonfiction book about that. But what made that book so powerful and so memorable were the characters and their lives and their personal dramas and, and how, how they navigated, um, how they navigated their world with, with their own personal baggage um, and, and their insecurities and, and their passions and their secrets and, and um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that- You don't um, want to be pegged as a Palestine resistance type of a thing. You want it to be the full, to have the full uh, spectrum of, of, of a work of literature, which I believe it is. I believe it does. It stands alone on its own with that as well. I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's going to be pegged. I don't think it should be pegged either. Go on, you were saying something. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, I think it's just something that, I think all writer, Palestinian writers sort of 
tend with this. And it isn't just Palestinian writers. I think most um, writers of, of, of color in general sort of end up being kind of have to be representative of, you know, uh, of so much that, and sometimes you just kind of want, you want your story to stand on its literary merits. Yeah. Um, yes. I don't think you have any, any to worry. I don't think you have anything to worry. Uh, I don't think any of your mornings are you know. It wasn't worry, you know. I, I, um, some people love it, some people hate it, and that's that's the you know that's the way it goes. But um, yeah, I mean, her and uh, you know either love her or hate her or whatever. And I mean, I think a book. <clears throat> novels in particular really kind of don't ever really become until until they're read and and that's where that's where their potential is is, is expressed it's not really a book isn't done really until until it's interpreted by readers is and um yeah well we're gonna have i i i think that i think that i think I think that in this book you offer a lot, and I think it'd be foolish for people not to accept your offer and, and, and get the book and read it and enjoy it because there's a lot, a lot in it. Um, and we'll have the links uh, to get the book and everything right here at the talk. So people will be coming up soon, right? But people can pre order already. August the 25th, it'll be out. No, that's what I thought. So anyway, Susan Abulhawa, thank you so much. Uh, the book is terrific. I, you know, best of luck with it. Um, and uh, thanks for having me on. And we'll I'll see you soon. Take care. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Okay, that is going to do it. Thank you for keeping up with the Miko Pellet podcast. Please rate and review the Miko Pellet podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, uh, whatever podcast app you use. If you haven't already, it really helps out with the ranking and getting uh, new folks uh, into the podcast feed. If you have any questions for Miko, you can shoot those over to me at booking at mikopella.com and we can try to get those answered on forthcoming episodes. Maybe start working on a, a second Q&A podcast episode. Um, and lastly, head on over to mikopella.com to pick up a copy of Miko's books. And please do yourself a favor and pick up Susan Abolhawa's new masterpiece, Against the Loveless World. Uh, once again, I've included links in the description for an Amazon and a non-Amazon ordering option. All right, until next time, take care.